Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are speaking with Writers of the Future 33 winner with his short story, A Dramalek, Sean Patrick Hazlitt. Hello, Sean. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. That was a, one spooky story. It's just like the guy really was evil. That um, The little catchphrase in front of the book for your story was, some devils are as old as a dream and more evil than men can imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised at how dark that story turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I kind of, I, you know, you look at the end and like, that was really, that was really dark. Uh, yeah. I, I think I remember uh, there was, a, there was an event that we had, it was a signing event at a Barnes and Noble. And I started reading the first paragraph in a public reading. And as I was reading it, I'm like, man, <laughs> this is really dark. Like I, 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 you know, I, but the, and that 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 story sub you know subsequently I think sold two more times as a reprint in um, you know best hardcore horror um, in, you know that was, I think it was uh, volume three and then it sold um, to another to another outfit also so that like that's just one of those stories that you you do some research um, you know historical research which. Uh, you know, you look at the demon, Adramalek, um, you know, so there's a lot of elements of that historical Semitic demon, but there's also um, part of what you do as a creator and, and give him a little bit of your, your own. So there's, you know, there's a, the, the creepy part about that story is at the end, there's a, you know, there's a bit of like kind of child sacrifice and things like that, but that's what that, you know, that's what that demon was known for, yeah. um, you know, historically. So, uh, but again, it's extremely, extremely dark. Um, it's probably one of the darker stories I've ever written. Uh, and you don't really know what the, you know, where, where those things come from. Sometimes you just start writing these things. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting, that, that's interesting to note is that when I first you know, submitted it, the story that won um, was actually shorter than the one that ultimately made the anthology. And the reason is, is that uh, when, when I got the edits back from David Farland, he, you know, he said, hey, if you want to add a little bit more, um, you know, feel free to. And, you know, my first question is, you know, I have a business background. It's like, how many words can I add? Right. Because, <laughs> you know, I know what the, the calculation per word is and, and all that good stuff. And but it's, at the same time, you want to you don't want to screw up the story. Right. So so I added, you know, maybe a thousand more words. but it made it actually made it actually took the story up another level. So there's a scene in there where he's the protagonist is in a graveyard and he's exhuming, you know, a body and uh, the, you know, the, the keeper of the, you know, the keeper of the graveyard, you know, sees him and he has this, you know, ability to, to convey his soul to, to other people. Right. Yeah. And then kind of take, take them over. So, you know, he's kind of stuck. Like, what does he do? And he ends up taking over, um, you know, the, you know, the guy's body and then, you know, th throws the guy into a well, you know, jumps into a well and then leaves. And it's just like, I, you know, I don't know where that came from, but it just made the story so much, so darker. much darker because what do you, yeah, what do you do in that situation? Cause you're compelled to, to do something horrific and then you're caught in that act and you, you know, you kind of, it, it's this, it, it, the, the protagonist kind of, the demon makes him do darker and darker things to prepare him for the, the ultimate thing at the end. And that's when there's the point of, of salvation, right. Where he, he sacrifices himself. Right. But you know, he does it in a way that's not entirely satisfying. Right. Mm -hmm. Where, but he still, he still is able to demonstrate the power of free will. And that's what that story is ultimately about. You know, the, the game is rigged against that particular protagonist, but in the end, he, is able to, to make, you know, not, not the best choice, but the most, you know, the, 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 the choice that, that maximizes that expression of free will. Yeah. Okay. Now having talked about that story you went with, I'm now going to read your bio so we can try to see how did this amazing biography of a person come out with 
just if there's any insight into that. So Sean Patrick Hazlitt is an Army veteran, speculative fiction writer and editor, and finance executive in the San Francisco Bay Area. He holds an A.B. in history and B.S. in electrical engineering from Stanford University and a master in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he won the 2006 Policy Analysis Exercise Award for his work on policy solutions to Iran's nuclear weapons program under the guidance of future Secretary of Defense Ashton B. Carter. He also holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School, where he graduated with second-year honors. As a cavalry officer serving in the elite 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, he trained various Army and Marine Corps units for war in Iraq and Afghanistan. While at the Army's National Training Center, he became an expert in Soviet doctrine and tactics. He has also published a Harvard Business School case study on that 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment and how it exemplified a learning organization. Sean is a 2017 winner of the Writers of the Future contest. Over 40 of his short stories have appeared in publications such as The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Terraform, Galaxy's Edge, Writers of the Future, Grimdark Magazine, Vesterian, and Abyss and Apex, among others. So you've... Um, I see several things there that could lead to that story. But anyway, <laughs> anything from anything that like led to your doing the writing the darker um, storylines? Uh, yeah, so there's a, a number of things. So, um, you know, in terms of like a drama like specifically, uh, you know, I grew up as in, in the Roman Catholic faith, mm -hmm. which, you know, is very, you know, it, it, I think the scariest movie I've ever seen is The Exorcist because it really plays on on that, you know, that, that, that faith with the, the rites and the um, sure. demonology and things like that. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's part of the, the, the horror, the, the darker bent, right. Um, in terms of kind of the, uh, you know, some of it's you know, somewhat pessimistic and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in Gen X, you know, a member of Gen X and, um, my generation has lived through a lot of, uh, crazy things. So uh, I'll just walk you through me personally. So when I was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army, um, September 11th happened. Um, I was a uh, captain when we invaded Iraq. Following, following that, I um, you know, got out of the Army, went to business school, went to the Kennedy School of Government. After that, I became an investment banker right around when the financial crisis happened. So, you know, I got through the, you know, you, you get through the, the financial crisis um, and, you know, you kind of rebuild and, and you know, save and, and, and kind of do the right thing. And then, you know, you end up in, you know, kind of this, you know, this, this global pandemic, right? Like a hundred year, it's like a once in a hundred year sort of event. Like my great grandfather, right, was the last, the last time we had the, um, you know, the influence, uh, the, you know, the, the Spanish flu back in you know, 1917, 1918. Um, in fact, I think he may have contracted it when he was on a, a like a, a ship in the Navy, um, you know, as he was like taking, uh, you know, conveying soldiers across the Atlantic Ocean. He got really sick. They didn't know what it was. He lost 15 pounds. Um, and it was right during the first outbreak of equine flu. So there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, the baby boomer, boomer generation, um, you know, aside from the Vietnam War, kind of everything was up and to the right. Whereas, you know, kind of Generation X and probably to a, to a tougher extent, the millennial generation, it's just they just can't catch a break. So, um, you know, a lot of it is just my reaction to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's still that dogged determination, even in something as dark as a drama like, right? It's all about free will. Um, it's not like the circumstances you're in. Um, it's not it's not what the. You know, it's not it's not the fact that you're in those circumstances. It's how you behave in those circumstances mm -hmm. and how you carry yourself on the other side of it. Um, you know how resilient you are, and you know a lot of a lot of the themes in my stories are you know, very very dark things happen, and sometimes things don't things don't always end don't always end well. So even with that experience, I had a good friend who the anthology is dedicated to, um, and his you know his name is uh, Jay Harding. I went to high school with him. And I was, you know, reunited with him when we were in the same unit in the U.S. Army, which was the, you know, the 11th, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And the last time I saw him was, you know, July or August of 2003. And then I never saw him again because the unit deployed to Iraq and he was killed by a suicide bomber. And he was the best of us. 
And, you know, the, the experience of my generation is, um, you know, has been, I, I would say a rougher, a little bit rougher than the generation before us, but certainly not as tough as the, you know, the, 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 you know, the greatest generation, the one that fought world war two and survived through the, the, through the depression. Right. So, you know, it's a long, long answer to a, you know, to a pretty simple question, but I, I would say those are all the, the influences that have given my stories a little bit, a little bit of a darker tint. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think with, with this interview, I'd like to go in that direction a bit too, on just the subject of, of the darker side, the, the darker um, fantasy, dark, you know, the horror stuff. Because you've got a book, Weird World War Three, and you sent it to me, and I very much appreciate that. And I was able to read some of the different, you know, descriptions of the stories and, and take a look at who wrote it and what the whole premise of the book was. And it, it's fascinating. I mean, one, I, I was really happy as well as being impressed that you've got C.L. Cagney, Stephen Lawson, Marina J. Lostetter, um, Martin Shoemaker, Eric James Stone, Brad Horgerson, and Brian Trent, all winners of the competition, Writers of the Future, as well as Mike Resnick, who was a, a judge and an amazing supporter of this, as well as his, his own editor of Galaxy's Edge, um, with a story in there. And then obviously having this be, um, as we were talking about, this is your first project uh, as an editor. So first of all, ta- let's talk about this, this, the book itself, because I think it's just a fascinating subject, Weird World War III, because it's, 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 there's a, that line of, of actuality that runs through it, even though it's like the weird side of it, it's not. It's things that are there that you can look at a little bit further and decide that, is that for real? And then make your own decision on it once you go on it. So what sparked this? So in terms of the idea, I, I, I always wanted to do an anthology and I was, I've always been interested in, uh, you know, the cold war and the relationship between, you know, the United States and the Soviet union. And in the begin in the very beginning of, you know, after graduating from college and even, even in college, um, there were, uh, you know, influences that I had, uh, that, that really made me interested in, you know, again, I, I, I was in ROTC, so I, you know, joined, joined the army. Uh, so, and in growing up, I, I read books like Team Yankee by Howard, uh, by, by uh, I think Tom, Tom Coyle, um, uh, Red Army by Ralph Peters, uh, Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy. I was always interested in these large conventional battles, right? Mm-hmm. And when I was in the military, it was, it was at the tail end of the you know, as the cold cold war had ended and we were in this weird and we're still to some extent there we, we transitioned from a bipolar to a multipolar world but we still um you know our, our our primary peer competitor at the time um was uh was russia um and you know as a result we you know my my role at the national training center was to train us forces before they went to war and we did that by having these massive war games 5,000 soldiers um, in an area the size of the state of Rhode Island in the Mojave Desert. And I became an expert on Soviet doctrine and tactics because that was the best thing we had. So I I became intimately familiar with that side of things to the extent that even after business school, one of my friends um, who grew up in the Republic of Georgia, his parents were trapped there when the Russians invaded in 2008. And he called me and he said, Sean, like, how do I, like, my parents are trapped there. How do I get them out? And, you know, I knew enough about how, how they fought that I knew what they were going to do. I told them, you know, which roads they take. I told them which targets they'd go after, which airfields they seize, which ports they block. And he called me two weeks later. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to repeat it for the podcast, but, you know, he said, Sean, insert epithet, like, how, you know, how the F did you know what they were going to do? And I said, look, I, because they did exactly what you said they were going to do. And I said, I used to fight like them and I could read a map. So all that, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, put something together there, but I also wanted to add that horror aspect or that weird fiction out, um, aspect. Uh, so think of like, an, you know, HP Lovecraft or a Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, and, and the way that, the way that I, I conceive of the anthology is, Think H.P. Lovecraft meets Tom Clancy, and that's 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 kind of how you know how it went. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to get some you know military science fiction authors, but also some weird authors. So on the military science fiction side, 
Um, you know, David Drake, is, who is very likely the, you know, um, you know, in addition to, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, right, the um, you know, grandfather of, of military science fiction. Yeah. So, yeah, and he was also, by the way, in the regiment. He was in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. He fought in, um, you know, Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, so he was, he, he, I think on that alone, the fact that we were both, um, you know, alumni of the, of the Black Horse, he, he, you know, got involved. Um, that's kind of the one end on the, on the science fiction side. And Brad, you know, Brad uh, Torgerson obviously fits in that category as well. Um, to the other extreme, which is kind of the weird fiction side, and that's the you know Bram Stoker Award winner um, John Langan, who you know write who writes an amazing a Lovecraftian story where he has you know it's at the very end because you know one of the one of the paradigms for doing an anthology is start strong and long, mm-hmm. and he writes extremely long stories, so he's, he has you know kind of like an eight. 8,000 word story or 10,000 word story, something like that at the end, uh, called second, called second front. And it's about cosmonauts and astronauts on the surface of the moon, um, staring on, you know, at earth, which had just survived a nuclear, you know, or not survived, but was in the aftermath of a nuclear conflict. And then there's a, you know, Lovecraftian beastie that starts going after the cosmonauts and the Americans have to decide what they want to do. Do they just watch it? Are, you know, are these things going to come after them afterwards? So it's, it's a really deliciously creepy story, and it's just done in the way that only John Langan can do it. And then you also have, you know, kind of the, the T.C. McCarthy, who's a, who's a Bane author, um, and he's, you know, he's got an interesting story. Um, and it's, it, yeah, and it's, it's actually um, a funny one too. I don't want to give too much away. And then you have, you know, the kind of the Sarah Hoyt's of the world um, where, you know, she, you know, addresses something that I didn't even know was, you know, may have been a real thing, um, which is remote viewing. And, you know, that kind of, you know, at, even after doing the anthology, that took me down a, a research spiral that I still can't, still can't get out of because it's so interesting. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's, 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 a, that's a bit of the, the inspiration. And, I don't know if it's ever been done before, but I hope people really enjoy it. The other, the other thing that's interesting about it is um, when I when I pitched it, my goal was actually to have it come out literally right before the election because there was still this, you know, this Russian stuff in the um, you know, manipulating elections and things like that, which um, I'm, I'm actually surprised that people are surprised by that. I mean, that's that's you know, everybody does that. Right. Like every yeah. government does that. Right. Yeah. It's just it's what you do to your enemy. It's It's not it's not like they're. You know, if you were, if, I'm, I'm sure we do the same thing. So, um, but I knew that I, I wanted to have it come out right then. And it just turns out the timing worked out perfectly. Which is great. Yeah. And then uh, this could be the primer for uh, Sun Tzu's book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah, Art of exactly. War. <laughs> this exactly. is nothing new about that at all. So that, that's just fascinating. And on this uh, remote viewing you're talking about, like I said, I'm very interested in uh, contacting some of these other uh, paranormal stations because they're, it's 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 not an, an odd uh, topic in the least, and there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of other research and and um, material on that subject. So um, I think this is great that you've uh, talked about this, and we can you know see what we can do also on just introducing you to a whole new set of uh, potential fans for you. That'd be great. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to learn more and. Yeah. And, you know, and, and who knows, right? Like, it's just, there's, there, there are declassified government documents that talk about programs that the U.S. had. And, you know, are those declassified documents misinformation? Maybe, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I doubt it. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're likely real. Did the program, how effective was it? You know, there's, um, you know, the government, when they shut it down, did, did whatever they could to delegitimize it. And that could have been right. But sometimes right. the government does that. Sometimes they, you know, it means that something's working pretty well and they want to keep it, you know, keep it, uh, keep it working well and, and not have a lot of people look at it. So exactly. anyway, again, I haven't done extensive research, so I don't know what's true and what's not, but I think it's a fascinating topic to learn more about. Indeed it is. So as a uh, writer, so you said you've, you know, you've had no problem on, on writing the more on the, uh, the nonfiction or technical side of of writing that you could just, you know, whip out essays and stuff. You could do things, but then it takes a little bit more on writing a, a story. So how'd you get started as a writer? How'd that, how'd your own particular path take you? So it all began in, you know, fifth grade. Uh, I had an assignment 
um, with a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Umile. And we just had to write a story. So I wrote one story and, you know, it was a fantasy story, just, a, you know, nothing too imaginative about it, you know, kind of a sword and sorcery sort of piece. And then I started writing sequels to it and then writing sequels to that and then writing other stories. And, you know, it, it, at that point, it didn't really it didn't really go anywhere, but it it, it was something that was um, you know, always in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I also uh, read a lot. So before high school, I was, you know, I was reading The Hobbit. I read, you know, Red Army, you know, kind of seventh or eighth grade. Um, you know, a lot of those books that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the you know, Robert Jordan series, um, Wheel of Time, I really got into kind of in, in, in college. Um, I was re- you know, reading Game of Thrones, not quite when it came out in, 19, in I think in 96, but, you know, kind of 2000, something like that. And I really got into that. Uh, and then in the Army, I started uh, an attempt at writing a novel. And it was a kind of sword and sorcery novel. Um, I created an entire world with an economic system, countries. Um, you know, militaries, how the militaries operated. I went into really, really um, fine detail, but I really, I still didn't know. I didn't know anything about the business side of it. I, I didn't know how people sold stories. I was just flailing, flailing in the dark. So I never really finished that, um, that effort. But again, I just kind of put it in the back of my head, uh, went back, went to graduate school, you know, did all the things I did there. Um, and then well, actually, so yeah, so so went to graduate school, did all the things I did there. Um, you know, worried about just making a living. Um, you know, had a you know number of different jobs, family, getting things started, and then, uh, you know, in two thousand nine, the financial crisis. You know, it, it things like that make you make you reassess what makes you happy, and you know what you what it is you really want to do if you could do anything, and you know, the economics of the business are still, it's a tough business. Yeah. And, you know, it's like anything else, um, the distribution for authors, it's a power law distribution. So, you know, you may have heard of like a Pareto distribution where, you know, in Italy, 20% of the, of the people own 80% of the land. Um, it, it's just, it's much more skewed, I think, um, in the publishing industry. So you have, you know, some authors who are just, you know, like JK Rowling and, and George R. R. Martin, who are just, you know, raking in the dough, right, are doing extremely well. But, you know, they're the, they're probably the top, you know, one one percent or less, and they're probably earning eighty percent of the spoils in the industry. So it's, you know, if you're if you're supporting a family, it's one of those things that um, you have you have to be resilient. We go back to that theme of resilience because you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of rejections, and you just have to really like what you write. And you have to write because you want to write. And part of writing for me is just exercising those demons. And it's it's a therapy it's therapeutic for me, but it's also the power like it's it's the power of creation and being able to create things um, is something that you know you have something and it it didn't like it just didn't exist before. Just looking at that book, right? That was the idea to to do that specific concept is something that I pitched to Bain. And, you know, I pitched to the authors first because I had a roster of authors before I pitched to Bain, because otherwise, why would they, you know, who's this Sean Hazlett schmuck that we want to you know, go with? <laughs> right. No, I mean, look, I'm not like, uh, you know, I, I'm a proven short story author. And even then there, 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 there are certain achievements that I haven't unlocked yet, but I've never, you know, I'm a completely unproven editor. And so you have to have a hook that not only has authors that will interest readers um, who write great stories, but you also have to have a concept or a hook um, that is consistent with the brand of the publisher that you're pitching to. So, you know, as you know, military science fiction is right down the middle in terms of what, what Bain looks at. And, and to be, to be, to be completely um, honest, I pitched another concept before that, that was rejected. And, you know, it, it was a, it was a concept that wasn't, it was kind of like, you know, sort of interesting, but wasn't right down the middle. Right. And the one thing that I want to credit, I, I know I'm kind of hitting a bunch of areas, but um, you, we talked about Mike Resnick earlier on in the podcast. And when when I asked him, I solicited uh, a story from him. For the first one, he, you know, the piece of advice is, is like, well, what, what's if they turn you down, what's your next idea? 
and then your next one. So, you know, having that guidance was instrumental because, you know, you don't have to be rude about it. If you get rejected, you say, thank you very much. You don't complain. You don't argue a rejection. But the way you handle a rejection is extremely important because you can always go back. So the same publisher, Bain, that I'm, I'm doing this work with, I, I submitted a, a novel to. And they, you know, they, they seriously considered it for, you know, it was kind of there for like two years. And they ultimately didn't go with it. And, you know, was I upset? Of course I was upset. But, you know, how did I handle it? Thank you for taking your time to consider my novel. Is there anything that, you know, I could do that, you know, might make you more willing to consider it? Or, is, or you know, is this kind of, um, you know, the final judgment? And, you know, I, I forget what they said, but, and, you know, you thank them and, and that's it. And by doing that, you're, you're, you're establishing that you're a professional and that, you know, people can work with you. And I think that also helped. They, they knew who I was based on that interaction. Like I was close, but I wasn't close enough. Mm -hmm. Um, but that the way that you handle, um, you know, tough situations, um, and, 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 and having the mark of resilience really makes all the difference. That's a very good point on that. It's a, um, one's business etiquette, you know, you can get for the, the, the acute upset if you decide to share it with your potential editor or publisher is just going to guarantee that they will never be your publisher or editor. That's exactly right. Like, look, they know you're upset. Like, <laughs> yeah, you don't need to share that. They know you're upset. Like, it's your baby. Yeah. Um, but you know, you're just, you're just some guy, right? Like you're not like everybody, everybody can't be, uh, you know, there's only a set number of slots that, that these folks can publish. So you just, you know, you take the lesson and you just improve the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm-hmm. You don't just don't quit. Yeah. Right. Cause again, the only, you know, the, the thing that makes you a writer is you didn't quit. Yeah. It's Kevin, that simple. Yeah. Kevin Anderson, who is, one of the most successful science fiction writers out there right now. I mean, he brags about it. he's he reckons he's got more rejects than anybody else. He keeps a big jar with all of his reject slips in it. And oh, I bet you, I bet you, I, I bet you, I beat him. <laughs> I bet you, I beat him. Yeah, well, if, he's he's got a break over two thousand to hit me. Okay, well, I'm not going to go into. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he he might though. He might. He probably does. He probably does. But uh, anyway, this, ever... this was like twenty years ago. He he was like eight hundred or so. So maybe maybe it is. Maybe not. But anyway, the the point of that of that analogy is is that you got to persist, and that every writer goes through that. You know, there's nobody that doesn't go through it. Even if it's just something as simple as it was a great story, just wrong day to go because they just bought a story like that, or you just need to keep on building, honing your craft to where you are that quality that you can be, like you said, your J.K. Rowling or your Stephen King or George R. R. Martin. I mean, even with uh, Brandon Sanderson, one of our contest judges, when I talked to him, I, I was a guest lecturer at his uh, creative writing class at BYU a few years ago, and this is when we got him on board as a judge. He was telling me that he had written, I think, five or six novels they'd submitted, and none of them had been approved, and he was ready to, to quit. And when he submitted to Writers of the Future and got a finalist, it gave him that vote of, of encouragement of, of like, okay, don't quit. And it was like about four or five months later that he sold his first novel. So he was ready to throw in the towel because it's just, you know, rejection after rejection can get, you know, it can get on you. It can get into your skin and you just need to know. And that's one thing that's really about Writers of the Future with the forum, this podcast, the blogs that people who go to, they'll find out that they're not unique in their position of being rejected for the 10th time or 15th time or 20th time. So they know it's blind judging and everybody has an equal opportunity. There's no yep, yep. nothing. It's either it's a good story or it's not. And um, so anyway. And, and, and that's what I love about it. It is, it is, it is a true meritocracy. Like there's no, um, you know, it, it, you are judged solely based on the quality of your story and, and nothing else. Yeah. Because there's no other information you have to judge it upon. So, um, I, you know, I, I really, I really like um, that aspect of it, and, and the fact that just the, indis- the discipline that it instills, yeah, right, it encourages you. I was about to say force, but you force yourself. Yeah, um, um, you, you force yourself to write at least, you know, a story a quarter, 
And that's a good discipline to have. And it really helps you experiment with, um, you know, different sorts of stories and, um, and you just see what works and what doesn't, because you get feedback too. Even if you don't win, the you know getting an honorable mention. I, I think the first, the first serious story I ever wrote and submitted, um, got an honorable mention. And I was pretty naive back then, um, when I you know when I submitted. But my view was if I don't like if I don't do well in this contest in my first submission then I'm not meant to do this, which is a terrible <laughs> attitude to have, right? As you know, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, cause, cause you get, you know, you get hundreds to thousands of rejections, you know, over, over during the course of a career. Um, but I, I got an honorable mention the first time and it, it really encouraged me to, to push forward. And I'm not sure if I would have pushed forward with, without that nudge, because I had no idea. I had no idea how, 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 how good or bad the quality of my writing was no idea. Yeah. Um, and it was a good, it was a good way to validate that for, you know, just to get an external, you know, external validation of, of something that I didn't know if I was you know good or not. And again, I, I consider, I've always considered myself a good writer, uh-huh. but writing, writing, um, fiction is a completely different muscle than business writing or academic writing. I, I still find it much more challenging than, you know, I could, I could bang out an article very quickly, or I can bang out an email that's very clear, concise, and, and, um, you know, creates movement and action, um, very easily, Mm -hmm. but, you know, writing a good story that somebody enjoys and getting the language right. And, and the number of drafts that you have to do, and just, you know, I go over and over and over and still it might not sell. And sometimes the story is just not, you know, it just didn't, it just doesn't work and there's nothing, well, there's little you can do to fix it. So, you know, everything that I write, I, I, I put it through, you know, uh, you know, you know, half a dozen to a dozen revisions before I send it out. And sometimes you sell and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you sell something that you thought was okay. And sometimes you don't sell things you thought were outstanding. It's just, it's kind of a, it's kind of, even this, at this stage in my career, it's still tough to judge my own writing and what's good and what's not. Well, one thing that also adds a little, um, hits to that as well, it might be an awesome story, but the editor just bought a story like that in the last issue, and it's, he's not interested in that story anymore. Or yep. what happened once Dave Farland said, one time he had um, three, three werewolf stories, which are great stories, in one year. He could only buy one. He could only he could only choose one for for the book, and the other two he just had to say no because I'm only do, going to do one werewolf. So it's a um, that's another thing that you know you have to realize too that, and this is where the Heinlein rules come in. You got to keep on sending it out until it sells. You know, you can't that's stop right. sending it out because it might also be just a guy had a bad, has a bad hair day happening today, and he and you, you just drew the bad card that he's. He sees your your story on his bad hair day, and uh, so everything got you know um, sent out. But if he would have seen it the next day, he said, "Oh, this is pretty good," because he's got a different attitude. So it's just there's a lot of the luck of the draw as well. So there, it's just a matter of continuing to send a story out. If it if you think it's a good story, then keep on sending it out until the editor says, "Okay, I like it," but do this and this and this. In which case, you do it. But otherwise, keep on shopping it until it sells. That's just, it's part of the thing. The, the exception to the rule is a person that sells first off. That is such an exception to the rule that it gives one a, a, a misconception of what publishing can be and what it should be, and it's not what it is. There's a, there's a quote that I, I used in my um, admissions essay to you know, one of the schools that I applied to um, by Johann von Goethe. It's, censor does much, but encouragement does more. Um, encouragement after censor is like the sun after a shower. And it's just true. That's kind of what the contest is, right? You get, you get more negative feedback from you know, just all the other submissions that you do. And just having that one piece of encouragement amidst you know, a sea of rejection is, what, what can, you know, is the one thing that spurs you to, to fight on. Yeah. Unless you're like me, which is like the, you know, the more rejections make me even angrier, so I fight even harder. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a, you know, you read, you've read a drama, like, so I'm a little bit, yeah, I'm yeah. a different, I'm a little diff- you, different, you different def- animal. But for people of of the similar um, genus of animal, 
So in terms of, of writing horror fiction, because um, I haven't talked to really anybody about that, any particular um, tips you would give or advice either on research or on tone or the sense of, of hopelessness or what about it makes it so, so interesting to people? What, what's the big draw that people have to it? But then also how do you go about you know, producing it? So in terms of what the, the draw is, is there's, there's this, so you, you get, a, there's like a, there's a vicarious thrill that, that you get from it. So uh, there was a university of Chicago study. There's a, there's a guardian um, uh, article that was out in the last you know month or two. And there was a university of Chicago study that said that people who were horror fans were like, post-apocalyptic fans were better able to, you know, or, or showed more resilience during this current pandemic because they've been reading horror. And because when you read horror, you actually rehearse worst case scenarios, right? Which is also kind of what I did in, in the military. So by preparing for something that's absolutely, you know, terrible and extremely unlikely to happen because you're dealing with you know, things that don't exist, like literally don't exist. You're able to handle the, you know, the, the tough things that happen in your life that are not, are not as bad as that. Right. Um, it, it also it just prepares you mentally. Um, it's the same thing the way we would prepare soldiers mentally. So when I was at the national training center, we would, we would always win. I think there was one battle out of a hundred that I remember losing. Um, I'm not going to say the unit cause I don't want to be cocky, but <laughs> um, but yeah, and they, they, they beat us bad. It was embarrassing, but it was, they, I think we beat ourselves to be honest and they just took advantage of it, but we, we always win. And the reason we would always win is because we wanted to expose what their weaknesses are so that they could shore them up before they actually encountered the enemy. Um, because yeah, you know, the enemy's got to vote and you can have the best laid plans. So, you know, in terms of the psychological piece, it, it gives people that vicarious thrill without the actual real, real world, world damage. Um, and there's also an intellectual component. It's just, it's just kind of interesting to see how human beings react to things that are unreal, things that they don't expect. Um, and, and, and the one thing, the one thing I actually, actually I've always struggled with is I've never actually, I've never read a story that scared me. Never. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's something about me. And it's something like if I if I don't know what a story, what you know, how a story reads that that scares me, how do I make a story that scares somebody else? So you mentioned also the the atmosphere, um, and that's the other thing I really enjoy. So some of the authors that um, you know, again, these are you know much much older authors, but authors that well, actually there'll be some contemporaries that that are really good for reading atmosphere um, in terms of, you know, in horror and cosmic horror, like HP Lovecraft obviously is, is one people have accused him of having purple prose, but I think, um, you know, I think that's a good start. There's also Algernon Blackwood, again, really good atmospherics, the same thing with HP Lovecraft, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, you know, those are kind of the, some of the greats that, that, uh, uh, have that kind of dark atmosphere. And of course the granddaddy of them all, right. Edgar Allan Poe is also an excellent, excellent writer to read in terms of more um, contemporary authors. John Langan is one for sure. Um, and he's, a, he's in the, in, in the, um, in World War three, as well as um, Laird Barron is also another really um, kind of dark writer. There's Thomas Ligotti, right? So there, you mentioned Dysterian, which is a literary journal that's um, has fiction that's similar to, Thomas Ligotti. And that's kind of, you know, if you've ever seen the first episode or the first season of True Detective, yeah. um, there's a lot of Ligottian elements there. Right. Um, and there's also, you know, there's, you can go even further back. There's a lot of um, references to Carcosa, which is the Yellow King. And that's, um, uh, you know, I think uh, like Robert, Robert W. Chambers was, you know, kind of in the, you know, at the you know, turn of the last century was writing a lot of, um, you know, he wrote about a play that if you went to see the play, you would go mad. And it was infectious and like really, really, really um, interesting ideas that were also, um, you know, very, very dark. Right. Um, 
so in terms and, and, and there's also different styles in in the genre right so um there's there's something that i don't really gravitate toward because i think it's it's um uh, it's just less interesting. There's something called splatterpunk, right? Which is just, you know, um, and body horror and things like that, which is, um, you know, very sort of graphic stuff. That's not my cup of tea. Mine's more um, atmospheric. Um, you just kind of things that happen, but you don't describe every little thing, right? Yeah. Just by, just by, you know, just by describing elements of what's coming at you from just beyond the campfire. Right. And just seeing aspects of it, but but you know, if you kind of describe the whole thing in extreme detail, you kind of lose some of the some of the the effect. Yeah. So, and I and I feel like the genre is actually, it's you know, in the past, it's kind of been the the, the you know the the bastard stepchild of fantasy and science fiction, but I think in recent years, I think it's it's come to more prom- prominence, and I think it also had a really big heyday in the eighties. So it's one of those things that um, it's kind of a feature, I would think. I don't think it's its own necessarily its own thing. I think it's going to be a feature of a of a, a fantasy story or a feature of a science fiction story. Um, so you know, there, there there are a number of you know different ways. Um, in terms of writing, you know, there, there's a there's a book by Stephen King called uh, I think it's called On Writing. It is, and it's 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 not just a good primer. It's not really, I wouldn't even say it's a good primer for horror. It's just a good primer for writers in general. Um, but I also wouldn't overdo it, right? There's there's a lot of, um, there's certain things that, that people talk about, like never use adverbs, um, you know, never, you know, li- limit the adjectives. Uh, what's the other, what's the other piece that they always talk about? Um, you know, don't use um, passive voice. And I think, I think those are good rules to learn when you're beginning, but I think you become a great writer when you learn when it's okay to break those rules. Right. So just as an example, um, so in the military, right, we were, we were trained rigorously to use active voice. Um, and the reason, the reason we were trained that way is if you're in a war, um, or you're in combat and somebody says the hill will be taken by 4 PM, who do you think is going to take that hill? (laughs) Right. No. Yeah. So so you have to be very clear and very direct. But in fiction, um, you know, you can do some you can do character development by, you know, having a a really effective way to have to build character. Characterization is is if I read a speech tag or or if if I read some dialogue, I know exactly who that who the person speaking is without a speech tag. I just know by the way they talk. And you can use passive voice in that way by, you know, you can have a passive character who, or, or a character who's not on the level, right? Somebody who's not direct, somebody who's indirect, somebody who's operating from the shadows and speaks that way. He just, you know, he or she speaks using, um, you know, a higher percentage, you know, higher percentage of passive voice than anybody else. And again, it's a small technique, but, um, you know, when you read books like, like the Stephen King's on writing, yeah, I also have to be cognizant of that. Because there's also, I think, in now in today's day and age, is there's an overemphasis on kind of like uh, Hemingway style of writing, where every word, you know, carries a particular weight, right? And and it's and it's moving away from kind of that Lovecraftian writing that people, you know, there's some people who think it's utter, utter dreck. There are other people who think that it's exceptionally well written, but there's a lot, you know, there's just a lot of purple prose. And you know, I kind of gravitate more toward that. Lovecraftian, um, you know, sort of, it's the kind of writing I like, but I also, sometimes it can, when, when I put my editing hat on, I have to cut that down. I have to cut it down a lot. Yeah. So, but, but I certainly like, I would never write like a, you know, something as terse as a Hemingway, right? It's just not like that. It's too, that's not enough for me. Yeah. Well, that's good. And that, that definitely helps on that. Now, how did you find out originally about writers of the future? So I think when I started, I, I, I actually, I know exactly how to, um, I was actually thinking about this all day. I'm like, how, how did I figure that out? So when I started um, submitting fiction, there's, there's a website called um, Duotrope where you can log, you know, where, where all the places where you can find what the markets are. Um, I don't know if it was Duotrope, but it was Rallin or, or Raylan, whatever it's called. 
but there was a it was one of those sites that had lists of of different publications that I could submit to because I had you know I, I had little idea I know about the like three you know analog analog Asimovs and fantasy and science fiction but I didn't really know much of, about anything else right so when I started going through that um I you know investigated writers of the future and I'm like oh this is like like what's the catch like this is this is phenomenal like I can enter it doesn't cost me anything and you know I can you know I I, I can win this massive award be published in um you know an anthology and you know go down to hollywood for you know an award ceremony and and meet um you know like uh, you know um influential authors in the business like tim powers and and uh, editors authors like um david farland and and um you know mike resnick and that's kind of the initial entree and then there is a um um, a website that is run by the writers of the future where there are other aspirants who, who log on. And I, and I believe at one point Brad Ferguson was running it, but that's he's, where he's still one of the, he's still one of the people on the forum on writers of the future.com, the writers of the future forum. He's that, still, that's in, right. yeah, he still helps out in there. Yeah. The forum. I, I think I, yeah, every once in a while I'll go back and I think there's one thread that just won't die. I just, I'll post something to make sure it doesn't die. <laughs> but, but all of us are on there. Like, you know, I think I probably started writing, right you know, about a year after Martin Shoemaker did. And that's how I got to know Martin. Um, it's how I got to know Brad. I mean, and, there, and there's some of these authors that um, I still haven't met in real life. Like I haven't met Brad in real life. I've met Martin in real life. I've met, you know, Marina in real life. I've met a ton of people on that forum. Um, but it gave me, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was just helpful to see everybody going through a similar journey. and you know, all of us. Um, and, and it wasn't a, like, you know, I come from, you know, very competitive, um, you know, a very competitive background, right. Where, you know, in business, you know, there's in some cases, not all, but in many cases, it's a zero sum game and this can be ruthless. This, this is a very different feeling from that. Like everybody was out to support each other. And, you know, you look at some of the authors who are on that one particular thread and, you know, a lot of them are, you know, or, you know, have their have, have novels coming out and uh, have um, you know anthologies coming out. So you have you know Martin's published, you know has had tremendous success. Um, Brad's had you know great success. Um, you know both you know Bane authors, but also I think Martin has some stuff from uh, Forty Seven North. You also you know uh, you know there 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 you know also um, I think a- Andrea Stewart um, you know has, yeah. has got a book that's that just came out this month and it's getting amazing reviews. So, uh, you know, just looking at that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the, the common, uh, one, of the, one of those common connections between the generation before us and the next generation of writers, right? There's a lot of continuity there, right? So, you know, Mike Resnick, I would consider him to be like a writer dad as, you know, as Martin would and as, as, um, so as many other, Yeah, so many other writers considered him that. But like the anthology you saw, like that wouldn't have happened. You know, there's, there's a, there's like a, you know, a much lower chance that that would have happened if, if Mike didn't just, you know, I, like, I, I knew better to have another idea, but I, I currently, you know, didn't have it up my sleeve yet, but he gave me that little nudge. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll put this, I'll put together another pitch. And, you know, when I, when the first one didn't make it, um, you know, it's an, it's entirely due to him that I made another submission. And as a result, you know, that you see that, that idea that just formed in my head, uh-huh. um, is, you know, it's, it's now, it's now a real thing and it's a real thing that's going to, you know, come out next month. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of the contest, that's, and then, and then again, I told you that, you know, earlier in the, in our discussion about the first time I submitted, you know, I had this really rigid criteria. Like if I don't, you know, if I don't, if, if, if it's just flat out rejected, I'm not, I'm not suited for this. Right. It's yeah. a terrible attitude. Like no yeah. one should have that attitude, but, um, I got lucky, <laughs> you know, and that, that's the other thing. That's the one thing I also didn't acknowledge. Right. There's, um, and, and you've, you've actually indirectly alluded to it, right? What if a, a writer, you write a perfectly good story, but they have to reject it because, you know, there's three world where we're, we're stories and yours is number three. Right. So there's a huge element of luck in all this and you just have to acknowledge it and you have to, to get comfortable with it. Um, because it's, it's, you know, and given it's luck, um, 
it's like playing it's like playing soccer right the the more shots you you take on goal the higher you know the more likely you are to hit one that's right and 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 that's the that's the way it works now are you going to be a you know best selling new york times best-selling author maybe maybe not you have to also do it because you love to do it because you have this urge to create that you can't stifle anywhere you know anyway else so um anyway I, okay. I think it's a great contest and i think i would encourage um lots of people to to enter it because it, it puts your name on the map yeah it makes people aware of you indeed it does now part of the uh, obviously it was content the contest was created by Elron hubbard he was himself a major writer in the 30s and 40s and then he celebrated his 50th anniversary with battlefield earth any particular comments about the essays that he wrote that were part of the workshop or stories that, that he's written that perhaps you've read? Yeah, so um, there's a story that was in volume 33 called The Devil's Rescue. Um, and it's his take on the Flying Dutchman legend. And, uh, you know, I, when, I, when I first read it, it still works today. Like there's something that was written, you know, I, I don't know exactly when it was written, right? But it was... Um, it, it, it's it's if you need a good example of something that you just of reading a story where you just can't put you just can't put the book down he he has a talent for that even even in um you know there's the there, there was a there's a, a novel that he came out with called final blackout um which which was i think it came out in kind of right around the Sitzkrieg or right after when the Germans, um, you know, kind of invaded, invaded France. Yeah. The novel kind of saw, saw, it was kind of a prelude to, to, to Einstein's comment that, you know, I don't know what weapons will be used to, to fight world war three, but I know that world war four will be, you know, will be fought with sticks and stones. Right. That it just starts right with the stick, you know, kind of in the sticks and stones part. Right. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, before, before the atom bomb, Right before you know, we you, you know you would have known about you know, some of the experiments and things like that and the theory, but um, you know we we the, the world didn't know about um, you know the, the power of the atom bomb until you know, the, like you know, 1945 when we you know dropped two on on Japan, but he kind of saw through, uh, beyond that right in terms of atomic wars and and you know what would be left after that and the the plagues and pestilence after that. And and not only that, also the, you know, a part about being being in the military, right? Which is, um, you know, I, I believe L. Ron Hubbard was a, a naval officer, yes. right? So he he understood um, what what. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but there was a um, there were two psychologists. I think their names is uh, uh, Shills and Janowitz, and what they did after World War II is they they wanted to understand why the German soldier fought for, you know, a fanatical regime um, for, you know, for the Nazi regime, like what drove them to, you know, continue to give their lives and, and fight. And what they, what they, what they learned is they, they established a theory called primary groups. And when you interview soldiers, you know, they're not, they're not fighting for their president. They're, they're, you know, they're kind of tangentially, they are fighting for their country, but that's not really, what the the primary driver is the primary driver is is it's the man and woman to your left and to your right and you know making sure that they they get through it and that's that that's one of the fun, you know, the fundamental themes of that of that book which is timeless yeah. right you, you you it's kind of this um you know kind of celtic idea right you don't follow your leader because he's your leader you follow your leader because you've chosen him and because you want to follow him yeah. Because he cares about you, because he's going to take take care of you, and he's going to make sure that you know you're going to survive and you're going to end up on the on the you know positive side of any engagement that you're in. And I think that's what what that particular novel captures very well. Which absolutely is correct there. Yeah, when Orson Scott Card read it, he's just he's got the uh, introduction he wrote that's coming out in the new edition of that, which by the way was uh, written in 1940, so it's it's. Uh, 60 years old this year but yeah it's, it's amazing and, and even even like even the like the the use of language in the first chapter and just the kind of talking about uh, you know the, the way the world has been shaped um mm -hmm. beyond all these wars it's just it's extremely well written extremely evocative yeah yeah so anyway so he was as the um 
as the author of both these stories you talked about, the one in the novel and the one short story, any you know, comment on that in terms of the writers of the future itself, how that maybe qualified him, or just your take on that and just being able to take the direction or what, what the contest has to offer for the aspiring writer? So, number one, it gives you a schedule and a deadline to force yourself to, to start something and to finish it. Number two, it doesn't cost you anything and it, other than time. And the, the upside is that you, you know, your name gets known and, and it leads to other opportunities. Um, because at the end of the day, you're dealing with a business, you know, as well as an art. And, and, you know, if any editor has, has the choice between, you know, somebody who's unknown and Stephen King, they're always going to pick Stephen King because Stephen King's going to sell more. So the sooner that you get your name out there as a known quantity makes the rest of the journey a little bit easier, Um, you know, for for that reason, but also just because the more you write, the better you get and the better you get, the more you're going to sell. That's right. And then, and again, I want to like, you know, caveat, there's also, you know, there are no guarantees, right? Um, luck can be, can be a bit capricious at times and you have to just acknowledge to yourself that, um, you're doing this because you love it. Um, and if, if you hit it out of the park, great. If you don't, well, it just, it is what it is, but at least you've created, you have to do it because you want to create, not because you want to, um, you know, become, you know, become a George R. R. Martin. That's a nice thing to have. Yeah. But there is a lot of uh, sales to be, to be had out there. And I think the main thing on this, the main moral of this whole story is the persistence and not, and not giving up, not quitting. And that's one thing that the contest as created by Mr. Hubbard was to provide that, that helping hand, but also provide that encouragement so that you don't give up. You know, you keep on going. And the worst that's going to happen when you enter the contest is you get an email saying, Thank you very much for your entry. Uh, you didn't make it, but please submit again. There's no judging. There's no anything. Just like keep going. Don't you know? Don't give up. And yeah, uh, yeah. And that's you, you um, can't, you're not going to be a writer if you quit. That's right. That's right. A writer writes, and you have to keep on writing and writing and writing. Um, I know that Mr. Hubbard said, but also uh, Jerry Purnell, one of our earlier uh, judges who passed away a few years ago. You know, throw away your first million words. You've got to write. You got to keep on doing and doing and doing it. And then also to your point on the, um, the rules in Stephen King's book on writing, um, one of the pieces of advice that uh, Jerry Purnell gave was you got to start with the rules. Once, you get, once you've mastered the rules and mastered your craft, then you can go ahead and start breaking the rules. But then you know that you're breaking the rules. You don't, you know, you're not doing it because you don't know. You're doing it now because you're very, in, you know, um, intentionally doing it to create a certain purpose, a certain effect that, you know, is a way to be able to accomplish that effect. But to start with, you know, breaking the rules because, you, you know, most because you don't know what they are, learn the rules, play by the rules, and once you get good enough, then you can start playing with them. That's right. And I actually, the, the first and last time I met him was, was at the, um, you know, the contest. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's, uh, you know, you know, as you know, he was also a former military officer. That's right. So th- when I told him I was too, and he just like he wouldn't stop talking. I mean, it was great. <laughs> it was, no, he it was fantastic. He totally respects or respected, you know, military as did Mr. Hubbard. He was, you know, he was more so the enlisted man, you know, in the non-com yeah. and in that rather than um, the generals and the admirals and the ones that didn't necessarily make the right calls, you know, because of, of the way they were appointed, not because of successful operations, but because they could, like he says, they could drink more wine, more champagne and, and smile better than someone else, you know, to get their appointments. He was definitely disillusioned with some of the, uh, leaders over the military when. And that, that, that shows in, in final blackout. Yeah, for sure. It definitely shows in that. So, um, We've definitely talked a lot today, and I'm, I had several more questions, but um, I think we're in about ready to call it quits on this one here because it's just it, it it went in a direction I wasn't expecting, when I, but I'm really <laughs> glad that it did because being able to talk about horror and that dark fantasy, I think, is so important that I've not had anybody to talk to about that, and so this is this is a great 
do new aspect to the podcast that we'll be able to offer to aspiring writers of, uh, of the dark fantasy. I'm glad to help. Yeah. So how can people find you? Where, where do they, they go to, uh, to find Sean Patrick Hazlitt? So I actually have a new website um, that I put together primarily because of the, the book launch. So it's Sean Patrick Hazlitt at wordpress.com. Great. And we'll put that also on the uh, website itself when we post this. And um, then again, the, the book that uh, is coming out in October. That's right. October 6th. Um, you can find it on uh, just about anywhere. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Books a Million, uh, Walmart, Pals Books, uh, Target, uh, you know, anywhere books are sold. That's awesome. I wish you all the best on that. And again, thank you very much for uh, taking this time, Sean. And I'm going to just close off this podcast. To everybody else that's listening, thank you very much. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast where we get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.